0: Our first scripture reading is from Luke 22, verses 24 to 34. Luke 22. 24 And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater? The one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied three times. That you know me. And uh, this account of Peter ties in with what we'll be looking at this evening in the Westminster Confession in chapter eleven, Article five, uh, which has to do with Lord the Lord's displeasure, fatherly displeasure, uh, with his children when they give themselves over to sin. And uh, Peter clearly, though he was close to the Lord in many ways, did commit a grievous sin, and yet the Lord also has a plan for Peter that he will continue on as one who is justified and one who is forgiven. But uh, more on that a little bit later. Not so much on that passage, but on the principle behind it. Then 2 Samuel 12, a passage that we have looked at in the past, but uh, this time we will consider it in conjunction with that article in the Westminster Confession. 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through to 15. That's the text for the sermon. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lit, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then, if you look in the bulletin, you'll find the Westminster Confession, Chapter Eleven, Article Five. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ that is rock solid. We thank you that you have his word to lead us to that foundation of Christ, the foundation of truth and wisdom that we need in order to build on the foundation of Christ in all of life. Father, will you help us to use that word for the purpose for which you have given it to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, the the point of this article that we just read in the Westminster is very clear and I think not uh, too difficult to understand the the wording of it here in this article. And we could really summarise it under two truths. The first of those truths is that the Lord continues to forgive the daily sins of those who are justified, and that cannot change. That's the first thing that comes out of this article. Those who are justified will have their daily sins forgiven. That's unalterable. And the second truth that goes with that in this article, that our ongoing sins can nevertheless cause us To fall under God's fatherly displeasure until we repent. Those are two important truths that need to be kept together. The proof of the first of those truths can be found, you can find it if you uh, choose to look up the proof texts for the Westminster. You'll get a short list of uh, verses there that could be used to prove this point. Uh, I single out 1 John chapter 1 verses 7 and 9 and 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 which essentially teach us that Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness and that's how we know that those who are justified will never have that taken away from them. The proof of the second truth may be found in Psalms 51 verses 7 to 12 and 32 verse 5. Uh, That's the, uh, the background to Uh, Or rather, this passage is the background to those psalms where David describes how he lost sight of the joy and gladness of salvation. He felt broken. He felt uh, wasted under the heavy hand of God's displeasure so long as he kept guilty silence about his sins and that kept on going until he acknowledged his sin to the Lord. And perhaps you've had experiences maybe not as extreme as what David had, But you may have had experiences like that when you feel that you've drifted away from the Lord uh, for a time knowing that somehow that's tied up with the sins that you keep on committing. Now this afternoon we're not going to focus so much on the the biblical proof uh, proof of these truths. We've done that on other occasions. And I want to take that as established by those verses I read out. But instead what we do is to look at an example of how this works out. A biblical example of uh, how this this, uh, works out in the background to Psalm 51 and 32. David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then the assassination of her husband Uriah. Because this particular passage certainly gives us a lot of evidence of how what's described in this article in the Westminster uh, really has the right of it. And it's something that we do sometimes experience in the Christian life. Three points. First of all, fatherly displeasure. Secondly, a son's repentance. And thirdly, ongoing consequences. Fatherly displeasure, a son's repentance, and ongoing consequences. In the first place, then, I want to distinguish between what we might call the objective displeasure of God and the subjective experience of it that the sinner may have. The fact that the Lord is displeased with King David is seen in the fact that he sent the prophet to admonish him for his sins. Nathan, as you're you're no doubt familiar with this, and as I mentioned too, we've looked at it in the past, but Nathan uses a parable to drive the point home. And because I take it we're pretty familiar with this, I'm not going to go into it in a lot of detail, just to summarise it. But in this parable there's a story about a a poor man who owned just one little ewe lamb, his beloved family pet, and uh, this rich man who then takes that poor man's lamb kills it and serves it up for dinner to a passing uh, guest. Now of course the rich man there represents David. He was rich in the sense not only that he had a lot of money but also in that he had a whole lot more wives than Uriah did. He was uh, rich in wives you might say depending on how you count it. David had seven or possibly eight wives. There's some disagreement on that but Something around that number. And in addition to that, he had many concubines. We don't know how many, but they're described as being many. Not as much as Solomon had, but nevertheless, that's quite a few wives and concubines. And then the poor man in the parable represents Uriah with his one, his only one, beloved lamb Bathsheba, whom David takes When David hears the story, as we read, he is condemned by his own words, verses 5 and 6. And he says, the rich man in this story deserves to die and he should make fourfold restitution because he had no compassion. And in saying that, David is also saying something about himself without realising it at that point. Now, in addition to a lack of compassion... You have here obviously a breaking of the seventh commandment against adultery. You have a breaking of the sixth commandment against murder because David arranged Uriah's murder. And on top of that, Nathan conveys the Lord's message that he had blessed David with so much. He had given him uh, such a great abundance far beyond other men. He had uh, blessed him with the, the money, as I mentioned, and the Uh, giving him uh, authority over the people of Judah and Israel as we read a passage. And the Lord says he would have added many, many more blessings to that if that had not been enough, verses 7 to 9. But David despises the generosity of the Lord. Those blessings are not good enough for him. And rather than waiting for God to give him whatever other blessings the Lord might give, the Lord who knows what is good for David, knows better than David does, rather than that... David acts in a a greedy way, trying to satisfy his own greedy lusts, taking the uh, provision, the satisfying of those lusts into his own hands rather than waiting for God to bless him with good things. It is clear then from this that even a, uh, a man who was loved by the Lord, a man who is described as a man after God's own heart, A man we might think who in some ways is even closer to the Lord than we are. And yet such a man is able to sin greatly and greatly to displease the Lord because of that. And to be rebuked for it. And to be chastised and punished for it. From which we understand that the Lord certainly does not wink at the sin, even the sin of his beloved children. He does not wink at our sins because he is a holy God. And he is a just God. But he also does not wink at our sins because he loves his children. We have the love of a heavenly father who knows that when we sin, we are hurting ourselves greatly. And very often, usually, hurting other people around us as well. And in addition to that, of course, we also... As members of a church, when we sin, uh, when that becomes public, we harm others as well in the church. We harm the church. And as we know those, those basic reasons for church discipline, we also very often bring the Lord's name into disrepute. Uh, a point that's uh, uh, drawn to attention here as well in verse 14. You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Well, that's the objective side, as we find it in this text, God's displeasure at David's sin. The subjective side doesn't come out so much in this passage. You find that more in those two psalms I mentioned, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. The experience that David had of the Lord's fatherly displeasure, perhaps even before he realised what it was that was causing him to have these experiences. Before he really admitted it all to himself. And yet he sensed that something was wrong. And uh, we could sum up those things that are mentioned in those two psalms. I mentioned some of those things already. But uh, there there are more that we could think of. Uh, Loss of joy and gladness. That's certainly one that David brings out strongly. Uh, A feeling of being broken. That something's broken in your life. Uh, Guilt, as we know, can bring about various Uh, physical consequences, effects, sleeplessness, David describes, loss of appetite, a feeling of wasting away, Uh, sin that hasn't been dealt with can bring about depression and despair and while I don't want to suggest that all of the many uh, psychological problems that counsellors are running around these days trying to fix up for people A lot of that, no doubt, comes from sin that hasn't been dealt with. I don't say all of it does, but certainly some of it would. Uh, Also then, uh, there can be uh, a loss of the sense of assurance, a loss of the sense of being a child of God, and a feeling that somehow there's a big distance between you and the Lord. These kind of things also may lead on to other sins, Perhaps out of the feeling, to quote that good old Aussie saying, might as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb. If we give ourselves over to one sin in one area, very often it may lead on to others because, oh, well, what's the point? What's the point of struggling against sin? I didn't succeed here, so why should I even bother trying? And it may also lead us uh, to a kind of reluctance to seek out the means of grace. We stop reading the Bible, we stop praying we don't really listen to sermons, even if we go to church or to the reading of God's word for a number of possible reasons either because we feel that we're too unworthy how can we uh, read God's word when we're so unworthy we haven't listened to it up to an hour with this area of our lives so why should we read it anymore or perhaps a feeling of being too hypocritical I'm such a hypocrite, how do, how do I dare open up God's word again today and try and come before him in prayer? Or perhaps we don't want to listen or read it out of the feeling that if we do open it up, maybe there'll be something in here that actually confronts us with the sin that we really just want to go away and pretend it's not there. But if we listen to that sermon, or if we read God's word, maybe we're going to have to hear something that we don't really want to hear. Well, you can see from this list, and no doubt other things could be added, that objective side of God's displeasure and then the subjective way that we feel that displeasure, you can see how, how unenviable this state is, to be in that state where you're under God's fatherly displeasure. It's a miserable experience, a miserable state in which to find yourself under the heavy hand of God's displeasure with the light of his countenance the the, the sense of being in God's favour with that feeling diminishing and feeling farther and farther away from the Lord and with something that miserable and that unenviable how could it be that a Christian would want to remain in that state for any length of time what Christian would want to stay like that in that misery But guilty silence only prolongs it. And therefore, if ever you realise that you are in this state, then by God's grace, don't prolong it. Seek the Lord's help to grapple with the problem as soon as possible rather than trying to pretend that if you ignore it, it will somehow all go away. The way to deal with it by God's grace is by repenting, which thankfully David was quick to do, once the Lord confronted him. Our second point: a son's repentance. Uh, David doesn't try to defend himself. You'll note he doesn't try to justify himself, and he doesn't try to make excuses. He doesn't say, "Well, you know, it was really Bathsheba's fault. You know, if she hadn't have been uh, out there on the rooftop bathing, I mean, you know, what do you expect?" Oh, actually, no, it was um, it was Uriah's fault. I mean, if he really had a good relationship with his wife and was looking after her the way he should have been, then this would have never happened. Oh, and by the way, I did actually try to keep the two of them together, you know, but circumstances conspired against me and I wasn't able to. No, none of that. None of that rubbish. We often come out with that kind of rubbish to justify our sins. None of that. I have sinned against the Lord. That simple and profound statement in verse 13 not even in the first place I've sinned against Bathsheba which he had or I've sinned against Uriah which he had or I've sinned against all Israel which he had but I sinned against the Lord the single worst thing and uh, the the heart of the the problem it is good that David said this it would have been better if he'd reached that point before he got confronted by Nathan and so with us too it's better if we can reach that point by God's grace it comes out in the open before we caught out but at least David reached that point now I'd really like to draw attention to this point that straight away soon as David says that the Lord assures David that he's forgiven the Lord also has taken away your sin you shall not die compare that with what we read in this article in the Westminster God doth Continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. They can never fall from this state of justification. And the reason for that is that the ground of that justification is not the sinner or anything in the sinner. It's not a matter of how well we exercise our faith or a matter of how well we repent. That's not the ground of our justification. The ground of our justification is the once for all, infinitely valuable work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who atones for all of the sins of the elect, even the ones that we haven't yet committed. And yet, the removal of the fatherly displeasure and the restoration of the light of his countenance and the restoration of that sense of closeness to the Lord, in that respect, uh, we... Have to, uh, that's not restored until the sinner humbles himself and confesses his sin and begs for forgiveness and has his faith and repentance renewed by God's grace. And that's what occurred with David. And that's what David also explains in Psalm 32 verse 5 where he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So that's the connection. Justification, never undone. But the fatherly displeasure, if that's there because of your sins, then you need to repent of those sins before things are fully restored again in that respect. In fact, I would suggest that this is a part of the reason for the Lord showing his displeasure and withdrawing in part the light of his countenance, that it is, as I mentioned, uh, on the one hand to uphold his justice and his holiness and his hatred of sin but there is this other reason and that is his love of his children that by doing this by demonstrating that fatherly displeasure he he shows us that um, uh, we need to be humbled he shows us or helps to bring us to that point where we fiercely begin to desire again that good pleasure of the Lord where we desire again to be in the light of his countenance we want again to know the closeness and the assurance of salvation and the joy and the gladness of salvation and also we want to progress in sanctification and the displeasure of God helps us to remind us that those things are important they're vital and it's precisely for this reason that we can call it fatherly displeasure it's not the displeasure of God against the wicked. His, his hatred of the wicked, as the Bible even describes that, that is not what we're talking about here. Rather, we are talking about fatherly displeasure. And Hebrews 12 has such a wonderful commentary on that. God deals with you as with sons. And what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 7 in that chapter. It would therefore be a huge mistake for a Christian to conclude from the fact that he feels the weight of God's displeasure against his sin to feel, and he feels this distance from the Lord, so long as he's still in his sins, it would be a mistake for him to feel that this means he therefore cannot possibly be a child of God. How could he be a child in God and have this feeling of being distant and of God's displeasure, or some people reason, maybe I'm not a Christian, if that's the way I feel. You know, at times young people may feel angry with their parents for disciplining them. I can certainly remember times in my youth where I was uh, quite uh, angry with my parents for their discipline, which I thought was, of course, always so completely unjust, they just didn't understand uh, so maybe sometimes uh, you felt that too, especially the young people here, that uh, you get, feel a bit angry that you're being disciplined. You feel maybe because your parents are disciplining you that you're not close to your parents or that your parents don't care for you and you feel humiliated and you feel, or you feel unworthy and maybe sometimes you even feel like it might be a good idea to run away from home. Well, it's a big mistake to run from loving discipline. Because all that's needed for restoration is humility and repentance. And then restoration follows in the home. And running away actually chops that progression right down the middle. There's no restoration when you run. And all you need then for things to be restored, those simple expedients of humility and repentance, simple in one way, though only God can give those from the heart. Uh, When you run, that stops you from uh, feeling that love again. And much the same is true in our relationship with the Lord. Don't run. Repent. That's the expedient. Restoration of the relationship, however, does not always mean that all the consequences of our sins suddenly disappear. The consequence of fatherly displeasure will disappear upon repentance, It will disappear for Christ's sake. But there may be other ongoing consequences in this life. Our third and final point. These consequences also are an aspect of God's justice. And I would suggest to you that uh, one of the reasons why God sometimes leaves us with consequences in this life because of our sins, even when his good fatherly pleasure is restored again and our sins are forgiven, is so that his justice is seen to be done. Not only done, but seen by others around us also. David himself, after all, said that there should be a fourfold restitution from the man, the rich man who took the poor man's ewe lamb. A criminal act in the courts of the land. Uh, the man who committed that act may repent of it. He may be forgiven of it. But justice still means that there may be consequences in this life, a prison sentence or whatever else. And as I mentioned this morning, when the Lord brings those things, uh, there's often a kind of poetic justice to it. It really uh, matches the sin that of which the sinner has been guilty. The, the punishment matches the crime. And again, I would suggest that this is so that through that poetic justice, through the appropriateness of it, it's easier for people around to see that the Lord really does take this seriously, that He has so carefully matched the consequence to the sin. uh, As well, at the same time, as seeing His mercy operating within all of that. David had Uriah killed by the sword poetic justice David will have the sword never depart from his family David took away another man's wife poetic justice David will have his wives or possibly in this case referring to his concubines taken away by one close to him Uh, think of Absalom for example verses 9 to 13 and on top of that verse 14 David's son with Bathsheba would die After David repented, the Lord said, You are forgiven. But these things, these consequences are still going to come. Because otherwise, the enemies of the Lord would blaspheme all the more. Verse 14. Perhaps in this way, that the enemies otherwise, the enemies of the Lord might look at David and they might say, You know, this uh, Yahweh, he's got double standards. He, uh, he's really soft on his favourites, like David, but everybody else know he's tough on them. I'd also like to point out that there is another possible reason for these consequences continuing in our lives. And this is one that reflects again the Lord's love for his children. Because those ongoing consequences stand as a constant reminder lest we forget, as we so easily and so often do, lest we forget the lessons that we thought we'd learned when we experienced his displeasure and return to our sins again uh, as if what happened in the past had never happened, as if there'd never been any fatherly displeasure. But those consequences remind us that we ought not to return to our sins lest we experience that fatherly displeasure again as well as reminding us and we sang something like this in number 411 uh, in the, uh, one of the stanzas in the hymn that uh, like Paul's thorn in the flesh these consequences are a constant reminder that God's grace is sufficient for us and it's also sufficient when we have sometimes quite difficult consequences from previous sins but even there God sees us through those things. And therefore, if you find yourself with consequences of this kind, and there can be a variety of them, perhaps your past sins have resulted in damaged relationships, perhaps they have resulted in broken trust, perhaps they have made you ineligible for certain positions, at least for a time, serving in office, for example, perhaps they result in penalties for crimes... Perhaps they result in physical consequences, as I mentioned before. But as we saw with God's fatherly displeasure, so it is with these ongoing consequences. Do not take them as a sign of God's desertion of you, but rather as a a demonstration of fatherly love and training. In order to strengthen you and further to sanctify you, and therefore as evidence of sonship. These things, these ongoing consequences, are not an excuse to become angry with the Lord, and they ought to give up no cause to despair either, but they are an opportunity to grow, so that we may then be a better witness to God, to his justice and his mercy, but also to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we sin, will you help us to repent quickly when we become aware of those sins so that your fatherly displeasure may not be prolonged and so that there will be an end to the harm that comes to us and others by continuing to commit those sins and more opportunity for the wicked to blaspheme your name. Father, when we feel distant from you because of our sins, or when we experience ongoing consequences as part of your discipline, help us not to despair or use this as an excuse to keep on sinning, but to see it evidence of your fatherly love for your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David's uh, Psalm of Repentance, Psalm 51 from the Red Book, number 51, verses 1 to 6. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 51, stanzas 1 to 6. the blessing as uh, our doxology where we do have the opportunity, though we are sinners, restored and renewed, and renewed, we have uh, the opportunity to continue blessing God's name by singing as our doxology number 146 in the Red Book, stanzas two and four after the blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You